If not for the government, who would build the roads? <laughs> who would bomb innocent people overseas? That and much more on episode who 80. Who would steal your money? Of the Scottish Liberty podcast with me, Anthony Samroth, Tom and Laird. Tom Laird, yeah. And our special guest from Attack the System, Keith Preston. Thank you. All Thank right. you so much for joining us on the podcast, Keith. How uh, are thanks you doing? for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to Good be here. All ours. All ours, indeed. And uh, our audience will be thrilled to hear from you because I think that some of them are raging anarchists. Ba, ba, ba. So what? So just tell people a little bit about you. You run a, a website called Attack the System. How long has that been going for? Uh, Attack the System has been around for, I think, 18 years now. Um, wow, that's a long yeah. time. Yeah, it first went online in its original version. It's had a lot of modification done to it since then, but it, the original version of Attack the System went online, I think, in January of 2001. Wow. So, yeah, it's been a good while. Um, you know, internet technology has gotten a lot more sophisticated since then. You know, it's been almost two decades. Not, not for us, it hasn't. <laughs> 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 and... Um, the interesting thing is you've obviously attracted a lot of attention because you basically catalog anarchist thought from both the so-called left and the right. So you, if I'm not wrong, you have got interest from sort of anarcho-socialists and communists. They find your resources useful, but also people who are more on the libertarian spectrum, such as Tom and myself. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I get a pretty wide audience. I get people from the left and the right, and, and even people who aren't anarchists seem to be interested in, in what I do as well. So I have all kinds of people showing up in my different social media forums and comments threads and things like that. So Definitely an interesting you, Go ahead. How did you get into anarchism? How did that become an interest to you? Uh, let's see. Um, the first time I ever heard of anarchism was when I was in high school. I was, uh, this was in the early 80s, and I, I had a class on English literature, and we were, uh, there was a unit on the Romance poets, uh, like, and one of the, whom was Percy Bysshe Shelley, and I read in, a, in this textbook, this high school level textbook, that uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley had a uh, father-in-law by the name of William Godwin, who was an anarchist, and I'm like, that's strange, I've never heard of that before, that's pretty interesting. And, uh, and I was like, so there's actually people out there who totally disbelieve in government or totally reject the state or whatever. And I, and I, I was young then. I mean, I was like 16 or 17 years old. So I, I didn't really think much about it uh, anymore until um, some years later when I was in college. By this time, I was in my early 20s. And I, you know, I'm more and more coming across the world of ideas, all the different ideologies and philosophies that people believe in, not just political philosophies, but, you know, you know, sorting, sorting out all the ideas. Well, what do I really think about, you know, all these different theories of psychology and human nature and philosophy and religion and all these kinds of things, ethics. And um, I was looking at all the different political ideologies and I was like, well, the one that I seem to like best is this, these anarchist people. Let's see what they're about. So, you know, I started trying to find anarchist uh, material, you know, from the library and very generic sources like the encyclopedia. I mean, there was no internet back then. It was years before the internet. 
And uh, I remember uh, just reading about uh, anarchism in the encyclopedia, reading about folks like uh, Pierre Joseph Proudhon and, and Bakunin and all that. I'm like, yeah, this is kind of interesting. I think I'm going to go with this. So uh, around the same time, I actually started coming across student groups of anarchists and was involved with you know, anarchist student groups for a number of years. And everything I've done since then is kind of building on that. It's been about 30 years now since I started with all that. Wow, excellent. So your site is called attackthesystem.com. What is the system? Oh, good question. Yeah. Um, you know, among anarchists and others with similar ideas, there's always been this uh, idea of how to go about defining what the state actually is. You know, what is yeah. the state? Um, you know, there's an anarcho-capitalist writer named Roderick Long that has an interesting essay about different theories about what the state is. You know, there's the plutocratic theory of the state or the, the populist theory of the state or whatever, the socialist theory of the state. But uh, to me, the system or the state or whatever we want to call it, there's other terms for it, the ruling class, not that's a Marxist term, but it's still applicable in some ways, uh, or the power elite. I like the term the power elite. That was a term that was formulated by uh, C. Wright Mills, a sociologist back in the 1950s. Uh, and elite theory is interesting. But what I consider is uh, the, to be the system or is the interlocking network of institutions that have the effect of concentrating wealth and power in the wider society. Uh, that would be the political government itself, which president and Congress are in, in the UK, the you know, parliament or whatever. Um, and it would also be the corporations and banks and the, the media conglomerates and the educational system and the foundations and philanthropies and all the uh, institutions that are inter intertwined with the state, with the political government. All of these uh, institutions are set up in such a way as to have the ultimate purpose of centralizing control over wealth and power. That's what they do. That's what they exist for. I mean, they may exist for other purposes as well, building the roads or whatever. But even when you look at the question like building the roads, well, who benefits from these roads that are being built? You know, usually it's uh, some kind of corporation that's going to get a big lucrative government contract to build the roads. You know, and and builds, who's going to decide where the roads are built? What is going to be uh, they're going to be built where uh, it's going to be beneficial to this or that industry or this or that developer or whatever, uh, even, if it mean, even if it means taking land away from common people to build a road yeah. on. So that's the state. That's the system. Okay, so, so libertarians like us tend to think that the government, like statists, broadly speaking, believe that the state will or should act as a referee in the market, providing they're the kind of statists that believe that there's any market at all. So, you, so that the government will be a referee, right? And that will ensure that the market is reasonably fair and doesn't exploit people. Whereas libertarians like us believe that the, the, the state is a corrupting factor in the market because as long as we have a state, then, um, it's going to be more profitable for corporations to lobby the state than to serve the customers. Without a state, they just serve their customers or they go bankrupt, right? But right. there's a third view represented by the sort of communist anarchists, and they see um, the the market as inherently corrupt. Where do you fall or on that? Or uh, first of all, and second of all, do you have any comments or critiques from that view? Well, it's a complicated question, and I think a lot of the different kinds of anarchist tendencies, you know, tend to oversimplify their, their claims and analysis a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, when it comes to the idea of the state 
as as a as a referee. You know, it, the the analogy to that would be: let's say you have a football match where the referee is also a player and, and you know mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, and has exactly. a stake, and has a stake in the outcome of the game. Uh, so right. The, yeah. The right. Idea, so, yeah. Yeah. So the idea of the state as a as a neutral uh, referee or umpire or whatever is is not a, a workable concept because the state does have an interest in how the game turns out. Um, now, as far as the the market, the uh, it depends on what you define a market as being. That's that's a problem because uh, you know if you I mean if if you have one person that has a plot of land and they're growing tomatoes, and you have a person with another plot of land and they're growing corn, and some people trade their tomatoes for someone else's corn, you can say that's a market, and nobody's really going to object to that. At least even even anarcho-communists don't object to that. Um, but what's often passed off as a market is just any kind of commercial activity. Right? But the, the problem is even the state can be involved in a commercial activity. You have around the world, you have many nationalized corporations that are commercial, capitalistic, market-oriented enterprises that are actually owned by the state. Or you have plenty of other uh, private institutions that are um, ostensibly private institutions that are heavily intertwined with the state or subsidized by the state or propped up right. by the state or funded by the state. Um, you know, a good, a good example of that is the kind of system they have in, uh, in uh, China and in Russia where you have this kind of national capitalism, uh, yeah. which is certainly a capitalism and it's certainly a market and they certainly engage in commercial activity, uh, but it's a state directed system. And, and the, the Western systems are similar to that, although in a, in, in a somewhat different set of structures. Um, and, but there's also the question of coercion. I, I think that, you know, freedom exists to the degree that there was an absence of coercion. Um, and you can have any kind of institution that engages in coercion. Uh, you can have a, uh, you know, I mean, the mafia, for example, engages in coercion. Um, or you can have a corporation, a commercial enterprise, a business industry in, entity that uses coercive means to um, secure advantages for itself. You know, an obvious historical example is something like the East India Company. I mean, this was a, essentially a yeah. private business that went out and conquered an entire nation. Um, mm. And around the world today, you see commercial institutions that have the kinds of power that states have. So I, I tend to look at it like the, the, the system is the system of concentration of wealth and power that we see on an institutional basis represented by this interlocking network of institutions that are set up on, you know, on a local level, on a, on a regional level, on a national level, and on an international level. Um, you know, and I know in American politics, I used to be involved in doing local activism around some certain things in my local area. And it was always interesting to me to see how all these different kinds of institutions are interlocking with each other in terms of the government, the local big corporations, the big business associations and civic organizations that are politically powerful. All these things work together. And, and, and ultimately, it's about creating a system of coercion that has the effect of concentrating wealth and, and property. You know, the, the standard anarchist critique of, of the state is basically that the state is just the mafia writ large. You know, the state, yes. the state is the mafia with a flag. And if you spend yeah. any time dealing with all these institutions, you see that's that's what they do. Yeah. Right, right. Because at the end of the road, you can ignore your letters telling you to pay, pay your taxes, but if you fail to cease and desist, they will turn up with a gun and go, you're going to pay us your protection money. So 
I guess the question is dividing different strains of anarchism is it the system of capitalism the private ownership of the means of production which gives rise to the state or is it the state which gives rise to this corrupt crony, crony capitalism well it can be either one uh, there there are different kinds of systems that i think have their roots in both you know the you you can have a system where there's such a concentration of wealth uh, that the those who are the most wealthy are able to form a, a state that in turn is, uh, is used to suppress competition or mm. uh, prevent workers from going on strike or, or you know, seize land from peasants or whatever. That can certainly happen. Uh, you know, to a large degree, that's what feudalism was. Mm, yeah. uh, or, or you can have just the opposite. You can have a, a state that creates corporations that um, have all sorts of institutionalized and, and privileged uh, positions as well. Um, and I think if we look at how you know modern state systems of the time we're talking about now actually develop, we see some of both. You know, we see this kind of meeting of economic power and, and political power. Uh, and as to you know which was predominant, I think it depends on probably the, the history of the particular country or region of the world or whatever, depending on and, and the various circumstances that were involved. You know, as, okay, I said, so as I said earlier, India was a situation where a private corporation actually went and conquered an entire country. I think. Yeah. But, they, but would, would they be right in saying that I mean, the East India Company uh, and their counterpart, probably the Dutch East India Company, but the, the, at least the, the British the, uh, East India Company, they had a royal charter, which is basically a, a government. Basically, you know, you go out there and conquer, and if you run into any trouble, we'll use state power to bail you out kind of thing would that be would yeah. that be a right assessment yeah yeah and it, it, there it's it's not really possible to separate economic power from political power i mean a company like the east india company or like all of the you know mega international corporations that we see today all yeah. of those are heavily interconnected with states so yeah you're absolutely right yeah even in the form of patents for example that's the government saying no, they're the only person who are liked, who are allowed to produce. That's a government-granted monopoly of patent, um, all the way to the fact that if you're, you know, a government and say we need to buy, I don't know, a hundred thousand pens, you're probably going to get those pens from an established company, you know, not from the little mum and dad pen producer. So someone needs to make the decisions on where public funds go. And they're likely to go to the most visible corporations or the ones that lobby and so forth. Did you have a question for us? I guess? was. I was just going to ask a historical question. How far do we know that, I mean, I guess anarchy's always been around in one form or another in a practical sense, but in terms of a, an articulate philosophy, how far back does it go? When, do, when does it first you know, sort of raise its head as, a, as an articulate kind of philosophy? Um, well, that depends on the criteria you're using. Um, in the ancient world, there were a number of thinkers uh, that had ideas that were very similar to what modern anarchists and libertarians have. Uh, in, in the Greek philosophy, you know, you, uh, there were thinkers like Diogenes uh, or, and, and Zeno. Is that, is that the Cynic? Yeah. The, Sorry, Diogenes, yeah, okay. 
yeah, Diogenes was the more or less the founder of the, the cynic school and uh, or, or um, you know, just like Plato had his ideal republic. Um, Zeno wrote a book called The Republic as well, which is kind of a quasi anarchistic system. Uh, in ancient Chinese philosophy, you found thinkers like that as well. Within the Taoist tradition, uh, you found find a lot of ideas. Like I know Murray Rothbard, the anarcho capitalist, always said that uh, Lao Tzu was the, really the first libertarian. Um, yes, yes. You find you find prototypical anarchist thinkers in in antiquity and in the medieval period and within certain religious traditions. I mean, within Islamic traditions and within Zoroastrianism, the Persian religion. You find in Christianity and all that. You find you know quasi anarchistic ideas. Um, and then in the Enlightenment, when we start getting into the early modern period, um, we start to see uh, ideas that are very similar anarchism being developed. Yeah. Uh, a, lot, a lot of English classical liberals were essentially anarchists, you know, in, in every central respect. Even Edmund Burke, if you read uh, Edmund Burke's Vindication of Natural Society, that's really an anarchist work. Um, and okay. certainly William God, certainly William Godwin and thinkers like that, uh, or, or some of the early, um, some of the French radicals from the Enlightenment, you know, Condorcet and some of those. Um, the first person that ever called himself an anarchist formally was Proudhon, was Pierre-Joseph Proudhon in the early 19th century. The first person who ever called himself a libertarian actually lived around the same time. It was uh, Joseph de Jacques, and he was, by today's standards, he'd be considered an anarcho-communist, but uh, he was another French radical from the early 19th century. So it's in the early 19th century to mid-19th century that the concept of anarchism as an actual articulated philosophy, where it's actually being called anarchism, uh, yeah. or libertarianism is starting to develop. So it's been around for rather a long time. I suppose it would beg, you know, or sorry, provoke the question, um, why hasn't it really taken off in a big way? What's the biggest obstacle other than obviously the state itself? I suppose it's a hard question, but if it's been around for so long, I mean, the only sort of practical applications I know in this country are probably after the, or during the English Civil War, where uh, after the death of King Charles, you know, a lot of these groups like the Levellers and the uh, the Diggers sort of came about, but they, they ultimately, you know, failed to establish or, or failed to keep their communes going. So what, what, what goes on there? Well, I mean, the reason that anarchism is not more popular or well-known or, or um, widely practiced than it is, is obvious. I mean, if we uh, go back and look at history, we see that from the dawn of the earliest civilizations, we see that the earliest civilizations were built on conquest. I mean, if you go back and look at the history of Samaria and Babylon and Egypt, you know, what, what was that but just simply one group of people going out and attacking and enslaving and conquering and plundering other people, and that's how the state began. That's what the state is. Um, so to the degree that modern states are not tyrannies, you know, to the degree that there are uh, pockets of freedom that exist in modern societies, uh, it's, or in any society, it's only because of people essentially asserting themselves and claiming whatever, you know, rights or whatever you want to call it for themselves. Um, you know, for example, freedom of the press exists largely because of the press, you know, because you had press people at, at past times that, you know, um, simply publish whatever they wanted to publish. And they said, okay, please put me in jail or whatever, if you don't like what I say. Um, and, you know, and that's true with, uh, you know, freedom of religion or free speech or any of these other things, you know, there's, there's these kinds of civil liberties ideas and things that, that are, you know, you know, fairly, fairly well established in, in, in a lot of countries today. 
Um, so, you know, to the degree that freedom exists, it's because people went out and took it for themselves and demanded it. Um, and the question you're asking really is, why haven't they demanded more? You know, uh, why haven't they demanded that we abolish the state altogether? And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of like a question, you know, of, um, why did it take so long to abolish slavery? I mean, slavery existed during the uh, uh, earliest civilizations. In fact, historically, they existed just about everywhere. I don't really know of any uh, it culture. It still does, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it still does in, 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 in uh, certain certain parts of the world. I mean, I mean, well, well, there's illegal slavery, you know, human trafficking and all that. But then there's actually slavery, slavery, you know, in a more traditional sense, it's practiced in a, a handful of countries still, Mauritania yeah. and some others. Um, but uh, but as far as, you know, the, the historic norm being that, you know, slavery existed everywhere, was taken for granted, you know, even some of the greatest thinkers of antiquity, like Aristotle, just assumed slavery was a natural condition. Uh, and as to why it took so long to uh, abolish that, well, it's a matter of, you know, again, people asserting themselves and saying, well, we're not going to take this. And of course, there are those who have a vested interest in maintaining whatever system exists. So that's, you know, and it's the same way with the state. I mean, to the degree that the struggle against the state has not been more successful than it has, well, this, these kinds of things uh, take time. It, it's, uh, it's a historic struggle. Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's quite interesting like to remark that I think most of the philosophers that have been popular throughout history are taught largely through the education system, the university system, all have a big theory of government, Plato obviously being the most flagrant of it. We can have this uh, benign, big benign dictatorship, Aristotle, he was for government, but then you get like um, Kant, who says you should always treat people in the way that if everyone acted that way it would be it would be cool like the prime directive you don't cut in the line because if everyone cut in the line it would be chaos oh except for the state which is obviously allowed to do these things like how can Kant not see the contradiction in his own thinking um Hegel though I don't know why Hegel is so popular he had like one good idea and that is the thesis antithesis antithesis synthesis like his whole philosophy is full of absolute horseshit but you know <laughs> there's this world spirit that guides the evolution of humanity and uh, um, is embodied in the state and great leaders and uh, it cho chooses them to power i mean the fact that the atheists marx marxists took this on uh, and still claim to be atheists like beggars <laughs> my head because it's such a religious it's such a flagrantly religious view what hegel's saying so that confuses the hell out of me but it's an interesting point to mention that marx of course is thoroughly spread throughout the university when he wasn't really that popular in the days when he was alive and of course he had a feud i i believe i think so it might have just been an argument or it might have just been an exchange of letters with bakunin the anarchist socialist who was contemporary to him because Marx said, well, we need to have a worker's state so we can phase out the state. And Bakunin said, that's never going to happen because the state will concentrate the power. So you need to get rid of the state first because you need to get rid of the state to get rid of capitalism. Am I right? Have I characterized that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, but, but no one's heard of Bakunin, but everyone's heard of Marx. And, you know, everyone's heard of Karl Marx, but no one's heard of Karl Menger, a better economist, in my opinion. So, and I think that's because these philosophers who've been promoted through the university system, it's because they promote state power. The university now 
plays the same role that the church used to play under monarchy. The church did apologetics for the monarchs and the universities now do apologetics for the rulers. They, they, they come up with these wacky ideas like the social contract that we've never seen or signed. They just produce all these crazy theories for why the state is just. Well, that's my, I, my anarchist rant. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I've said. Yeah, um, well, as far as Marx goes, um, you're right in the sense that Marx and the anarchists had a, a very bitter rivalry, and it wasn't just exchange of letters. I mean, these a lot of the early anarchists like like uh, Proudhon, uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, Max Stirner, um, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, they, they they knew Marx personally, and they all hated each other. <laughs> it was uh, the anarchists. They hated each other. Yeah, the anarchists and the Marxists always hated each other, even when they knew each other I personally. Each other if, if Proudhon was personally, if Proudhon was in France, was Marx kicking around in France? Yeah, well, okay, Marx's uh, book, The uh, Poverty of Philosophy, that is an attack yeah. on Proudhon. Right? Yeah, it's, I remember that. Work. Yeah. Uh, well, Stirner, I don't know if Marx and Proudhon knew each other personally beyond polemics. But Marx okay. and uh, Marx and, and Max Stirner certainly knew each other personally. They were actually part of the same uh, uh, intellectual circles um, right. at one point. Uh, in fact, the only surviving picture we have of uh, Max Stirner is actually a hand sketch of Max Stirner that was written that was drawn by Frederick Engels about forty years later, based on just his personal recollections of what Max Stirner looked like. Um, Bakunin and Marx knew each other. They were part of the First International, and uh, the Bakuninists were kicked out of the First International by the Marxists. There was the, you know, and that, that was a lengthy history of that. And that's Just how it for started. those who don't know, please explain what the First International was. Oh, yeah. The, the First International was an international organization of workers' rights organizations that existed in the late 19th century. Uh, it included uh, a wide range of points of view. It included the Marxists, it included the followers of Proudhon, the followers of Bakunin, it included the British trade unions, it included uh, followers of uh, Louis Blanc and other radical French socialists. Uh, but, you know, the idea was a, a united labor front. Um, this was in the 19th century when the labor question, or what they used to call the social question, was the mm. big issue of the time. Um, so and this this was an, a, a labor organization um, within the context of the first international. There was a lot of factionalization, and the biggest one was the rivalry between the Marxists and the Bakuninists, which uh, culminated in, in the Marxists expelling the anarchists, the followers of Bakunin, from the first international. Uh, and that that pattern has continued itself ever since. Like every Marxist revolution that has happened since that time, the anarchists. Have usually been one of the first groups to be purged by the state, by the new yeah. Marxist state. Um, so, uh, so there's obviously this history goes back a long ways. Um, as far as Marx, as far as why he became so popular, um, it's true that he wasn't that popular uh, during the 19th century, during his own lifetime, and, and even after that. At the height, I guess of the that's true of a lot of philosophers, though. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but um, at, at the height of the radical labor movement, though, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it was actually the anarchists that were much, much uh, more more influential and much larger as a movement, and uh, not just in the Western countries, but even in the in the colonies, the uh, the the anti-imperialist movements, the early anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movements. Uh, anarchists had a lot of influence in those. 
Marx tended to appeal more to intellectuals, uh, less, less to activists and radicals and more to intellectuals, right. uh, in part because he had this really elaborate theory of socialism he developed, which purported to be based on scientific principles, scientific socialism and all of that. And I think that he was appealing to intellectuals in the same way that theology is appealing to the priests. You know, it's, uh, yeah. It, they, you know, for people who like to get bogged down in a lot of theory, it was appealing. Uh, but it's also interesting to note, though, that most, I would say all uh, Marxist revolutions that have taken place have largely been led and organized by the left wing of the middle class. Um, if you look at the Russian Revolution, if mm. you look at the, uh, and I think this is true of a lot of revolutions generally, I don't think it's just Marxist revolutions, but if we look at the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, you know, all of these Marxist-influenced revolutions that happened in the 20th century, what we see is that the leaders always come from the upper strata of the middle class. There's very few prominent communists from history that were actual proletarians. You know, Lenin didn't right. come from that, Trotsky didn't come from that, Mao didn't come from that, Kim Il-sung didn't come from that. The only the only prominent communist from history that was an actual peasant or proletarian was Joseph Stalin. The rest, yeah. the rest weren't. Yeah, and, uh, and 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 Stalin was really more of a lumpen proletarian. He was more of a you know, started off as a bank robber. And yeah, <laughs> more of a gangster. But uh, uh, yeah, but I think that Marxism appealed to intellectuals because of its elaborate the theoretical system that purports to be scientific. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's also true that uh, it's an ideology that appeals to people who aspire to state power. Uh, the same is true as West, of Western progressivism. Like in, in the United States, we don't have much of a Marxist tradition. We've never had Marxist-oriented parties right. or that, that were very influential. But we do have the American progressive tradition. I think in the in the UK it's the, more like the Fabian tradition. But uh, yeah, but uh, you know, the, the American progressive tradition is about this idea of the scientific, you know, supposedly scientific management of society, you know, through the state, of course. And of course, who's going to be the managers and planners and all that kind of stuff? Well, it's going to be the professional class. It's going to be the academics and the intellectuals. Um, so I think that a lot of that really is rooted in the idea of you know the professional class, the upper middle class, the intellectual class, trying to find ways to advance themselves as a power group outside the the ranks of the traditional plutocracy. You know the, the, the those that are simply concerned about money, making money, you know, the, the uh, or or wealth. You know which whether it's whether it's the feudal aristocracy or whether it's the capitalist plutocratic class. So I think that's mm -hmm. the reason and for the appeal of Marxism to intellectuals. Even Noam Chomsky, you know, Noam Chomsky's probably yep. one of the leading leftist intellectuals in the world, but he said that. He said that the reason that anarchism does not appeal to intellectuals is because there's no means to state power in, with anarchism, mm. as opposed to Marxism right. and some of these other ideas. Where there is. Yeah, and I think, I think that's, that's kind of one of the things that was driving at, like, well, I mean, you wouldn't see if all the schools were run by McDonald's, you wouldn't be surprised if not many people were eating at Burger King. So given that the schools are on, all run by the state, uh, the st without, you know, there's no one to hand you out favors for supporting it much under anarchism. So um, sure. it's also people have a prejudice and a bias towards what they already know. So, you know, you come up in this, I mean, we forget simple things like, you know, we choose who we marry, we choose who to work for. 
in the past you did what your parents did, you married who your parents said, you lived where your parents lived, and your labor belonged to your feudal lord, and you didn't have much leisure time because you were working on a farm 61 hours a, a day. So we kind of we were very kind of domesticated into our own kind of society, and we don't really it's very hard for people to picture a society without a government. Yeah. I was I was just gonna ask you, I mean given that the Marxists and the anarchists had this antagonism for each other historically, at what point do we see this kind of, or maybe I'm wrong about this, but I seem to see this synthesis where now everybody who I meet who's on the left of the anarchist spectrum seem to be, they want social government. You know, they, they, they don't want government to tell them what they do, but they want government to buy them, to, you know, to give them stuff. Uh, so, so when did when did that kind of synthesis, or, or, or am I imagining that? No, you're not imagining it. Um, right. Well, I, I think there's a lot of things to feed into that. Um, okay. In the in 1917, when the Russian Revolution happened, you had a lot of anarchists that started drifting towards Marxism and towards communism because that was something that was actually successful. That was something that was actually okay. Wow, they actually did it. You know, they had a revolution. You know, they they must know what the right way is or whatever. Uh, and that is really the, the time when communists started to eclipse anarchists as being the predominant radical movement uh, in the West. Right. Uh, and, and then and then later the, the communists were able to co-opt the anti-colonial movements in the, in the colonies as well, uh, which is why so many anti-colonial uh, revolutions in the 20th century were led by communists. Um, and all, But I also think that another issue is that um, in the post-war period, uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, you had a, 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 the new left, when the new left developed. Right. The new left purported to be uh, anti-Stalinist. They, they would look at regimes like, like, uh, like Stalinist Russia, the Soviet Union, and say, no, we don't want that. We don't want this kind of massive, you know, bureaucratic, totalitarian system. Uh, we want something better than that. Uh, well, what they would do is they would take Marxism and blend it with some anarchistic ideas. You know, they would go back and say, well, let's go back and dig off, uh, dust off uh, Bakunin, or let's dust off the anarchists, or let's look at some philosophers that are kind of in between. They were also really big on the younger Karl Marx when he was more of a utopian socialist type, like Robert Owen right. or William Morris or someone like that. Um, so uh, they, would, they would dust all that stuff off and kind of create this synthesis. And if you look at a lot of radicalism that came out of the 60s, what you saw was this kind of stuff. You saw this kind of hybrid Marxist, Maoist, you know, uh, you know Buddhist, you know, whatever kind of philosophy that ended up really not making any sense in, in terms of its uh, you know, intellectual content. But it was more of a cultural movement, if you will. It's more like, uh, oh, we want a nice society. Oh, can't society just be nice and yeah. like take care of each other and not go to war and like can we not just have a nice socialism? Like can we not just all be nice together? Yeah, right. Yeah, they, and um, and but all of that has you know the, the the modern anarchist movement, like the people that we see that go out and protest against uh, the G twenty or whatever with the black yeah. flags and the black and red flags and all of that, you know, that's, that's really the tradition they come out of. They come out of this 1960s type of radicalism, um, which is, you know, they, they'll, they'll 
give a certain recognition to 19th century anarchism, and then they throw in all this 1960s-style radicalism, uh, you know, radical feminism and the radical ecology movement and uh, the gay movement mm -hmm. and all of that. And then they'll bring in, you know, more more newer ideas as well, that, you know, um, like the stuff okay. that... So they're trying to create a synthesis for widespread appeal. Well, how, how, how influential, if at all, was the, uh, the Frankfurt School in any of this? Well, they were really influential in terms of shaping some of the ideas that built the modern left, like the new left generally, not just the anarchists. The, the, the anarchists that we're talking about, that particular species of anarchists, are an outgrowth of the new left. But, and the new left itself was heavily influenced by the Frankfurt School. The, the, frame, the idea behind the Frankfurt School was they wanted to um, take Marxism and flip it on its head where instead of looking at everything from an economics angle, where it's all just about class struggle and class power and things like that, and where culture is simply a creation of the dominant economic class to legitimize its own um, existence, they sort of inverted that and they said, well, no, let's look at the way that culture shapes politics and economics. Um, the, right. the, what, what motivated a lot of this was when World War I happened, now, keep in mind, the Marxists always taught that the workers have no country. Right? So in, in World War I, when the workers, unions and all of that, and even the socialist parties in a lot of countries were rallying behind their particular states and nations and going to war with each other, rather than carrying out an international proletarian revolution, a lot of Marxists looked at that like, okay, something went wrong here. Uh, why didn't the workers have their revolt? Why did the workers go and yeah. side with their states against the workers in other countries or whatever? So they said, well, the answer must be that workers have been inculcated with the values of the ruling class. Right. You know, the, the workers have been taught, Yeah, right. The workers have been taught, um, you know, patriotism and nationalism and, and you know, middle class values or bourgeois values or, you know, what, whatever it was, whatever the particular target was. Uh, so, the, so before the workers can really have a, a revolution, they have to uh, be uh, dispossessed of this false consciousness. You know, they've got to be educated in the proper, you know, proletarian ideology. Yeah. That's how this kind of thinking tends to start. Yeah. Now, in the in the mid twentieth century, like in the post World War II period, we're, not, we're talking about the nineteen fifties. Yeah. The, uh, when the kind of affluence that we saw developing uh, in the post-war period, you know, post the post-scarcity is what they would call it, uh, particularly in the United States, we, we had this massively expansive middle class uh, during that time. Um, a lot of Marxists started to look at it like the workers had been bought off by capitalism. They started looking right. at it like um, With their, they had more comfortable standards of living, and that stopped them from revolting. Right. So the, the Marxists would look at it like, well, the real source of the struggle in the future is going to be dispossessed social groups. In the United States, it would have been uh, black people, African-Americans, uh, feminists, homosexuals, young people. Uh, Jews to a certain uh, extent, maybe? Huh? Jews to a certain extent, maybe? Yeah, Jews? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, minorities, ethnic and yeah. racial minorities generally or religious minorities or anyone that has a grievance against history or against the, the dominant society that's the so, so a lot of Marxist and radical leftists started shifting their focus in that kind of direction during the 60s and 70s but so they took they took this emphasis on dispossessed social groups or marginal social groups and combined it with this ideology that's sort of a hybrid of Marxism and anarchism and Eastern mysticism and 
and you know just standard social democracy and all these kinds of yeah. things. It was it became a hodgepodge of stuff that really made no sense, and that's mm -hmm. really what it still is. I mean, that's even where we are. That's where we are. They don't really have a coherent philosophy anymore. Well, yeah. just can I, can I just. Um, is is the influence of the Frankfurt School, in your opinion, is it overstated? I mean, like, I mean, you you you'll hear special people in the alt right talk about the Frankfurt School and saying that it's it's the root of all evil. Is it overstated, or or, or was it extremely important in getting to where we are today in, in uh, modern leftism? Yes and no. Uh, it, it's overstated. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of the alt right types will talk about how the. Uh, the uh, Frankfurt School was a tool of the Jewish conspiracy, you know, yeah. because a lot of the leading Frankfurt School intellectuals were Jews and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, they also think Bolshevism was a Jewish conspiracy, and they think Christianity was a Jewish conspiracy, so everything's a Jewish conspiracy. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. no, the Frankfurt School, though, was extremely influential in the development of, you know, post-war intellectual culture, as was postmodernism. Um, you know, yeah. if you want to at a, at a university, if you were to take a graduate level seminar on you know modern intellectual culture, you would certainly probably talk about the Frankfurt School at some point, just like you talk about Foucault and Derrida and all the other Derrida. Yeah. But would it be fair? Matters. Would it be fair to say, despite like I mean, we look at cultural Marxism, especially where it's reached now, and we're kind of horrified by it because the end point of it is, you know, speakers getting banned from universities and things like that. Would it be fair to say that the Frankfurt School intellectuals themselves were actually, from their point of view, trying to humanize society because they thought it was very alienating and they were at, their target was not to, I mean, would you, would you, would you think that that's how they'd see themselves? Uh, yeah. Um, well, the Frankfurt School basically wanted to have socialism without Stalinism. I mean, they were, you know, they, they had this kind of uh, left Marxism that was anti-Stalinist. Uh, and they wanted to uh, criticize, you know, not only what they saw as problems with capitalism or consumerism and, and commercial society, um, but they were also critical of what, what they call scientism, you know, the idea that science can be corrupted for the uses uh, of, or technology can be corrupted for the purpose of, of, of you know, imposing tyranny. And the mm -hmm. obvious model they drew on was Nazi Germany about how you had a, you know, an industrial state that practiced genocide as a matter of uh, industrial policy, you know, you know, ostensibly based on the application of scientific ideas. Um, so that's where a lot of that came from. They, they also, Frankfurt School also critiqued the, uh, what they called the culture industry about how you actually have industries that actually manufacture cultural trends in part to sell products and things like that, which I actually think is really interesting. I mean, it's a lot of stuff in the Frankfurt School writers you can get a lot out of. Hmm. Uh, but the, um, uh, one, one of the, I think the most serious problem with the Frankfurt School was uh, the idea of repressive tolerance. The, uh, right. the idea that Herbert Marcuse, who was one of the leading uh, Frankfurt School thinkers, and he was very influential on the new left, even more so than a lot of the other Frankfurt School people were, in part because he actually taught in American universities for years at Brandeis and, and Berkeley and places like that. But um, Marcuse had this idea of repressive tolerance, and he had this idea that it's fine to be intolerant of people or even engage in repression against people that are opposed to liberation uh you know which you know the idea is uh you know we're going to oppose 
we're going to be intolerant of intolerant people yeah. because that way we can have more tolerance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of, of course, but, but you know, simultaneously, you must demand that they tolerate you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, if you um, get into Marcuse's writings, in fact, I actually have a, an essay I wrote about this. It's in some of my books, and it's on the Attack the System website as well, um, where I critique some of Marcuse's ideas. If you read his writings, he's specifically saying that non-leftist ideas and, and philosophies have no right to exist. And in my opinion, in my interpretation of him, he's actually justifying not just ostracism, but state repression, if necessary, against these kinds of ideas. Now, his uh, contemporaries Adorno and so forth, have, would they have subscribed to his views or would they have opposed them? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, well, I know when the, a lot of student rebellions uh, started in, uh, in in the late 60s. Adorno was actually opposed to a lot of that. In fact, uh, one time uh, he had a group of student protesters that were uh, creating havoc in the university he was teaching in, in Germany. He called the cops on them and the cops take them out. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, for, you know, for whatever their limitations, a lot of the, the Frankfurt School guys were old-style academics. You know, I mean, they took education and all that kind of stuff seriously uh, and scholarly work seriously. Um, you know, whether you agree with all their ideas or not. Now, I think in Makusa's case, a lot of his views were shaped by his experience of having been a refugee from Nazi Germany. Um, you know, if you were a Jewish guy, which, which he was, he was mm. Jewish, and he was in Nazi Germany and had to leave Nazi Germany for obvious reasons. Uh, if, if that's been your life experience, it's understandable that on one hand, you might have this idea that, yeah, maybe we should be intolerant of the far right or whatever. So you, know, you have to understand some of, of these ideas in their context. But what's happening mm. that, though is that this whole idea of no platform has been developed into just kind yeah. of a free show in the sense that, um, you know, for example, um, in the United States, we have uh, radical leftists that will go out and try to prevent speakers from speaking. And I, from what I've seen, there are similar things. No, that we have on. it here, too. We have it here, yeah. too. Yeah, and, and they're not just targeting neo-Nazis. People date that back to Marcusa. I... I I tend to think that if it hadn't been him, they'd still find a pretext. If yeah. he hadn't existed, he'd probably yeah. still I, I be. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now, I'm aware that we don't have loads and loads of time left. I mean, would you like to finish your point? Uh, only one more thing, and that is sure. the kind of authoritarian leftism that we have today has a, its roots in a lot of things. It's not just the Frankfurt School or some conspiracy yeah. hatched by Marxists or Jews or whomever you want to blame. Um, you know, I think there's actually a Maoist influence on the modern Western left that was imported into the West from China during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and I think a lot of the political correctness has its roots in that. Um, and then it also, you know, you can trace some of this back to ideas that existed before the modern left. There's a lot of similarities between uh, this and the stuff we're talking about in religious fundamentalism and all these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, you can take any kind of values and use them towards authoritarian end, or the state can co-opt any set of values. I think that's really the important part with this. Right, that is, yeah, the state will co-opt values. Yeah, I mean, it, it the, state can take, power. the state can take the idea of traditional values or religion or family values or traditional morality or whatever and co-opt that, and they can do that with leftist ideals as well, socialism or communism or anti-racism or feminism or something like that. So they can, that can be taken in any kind of direction. Right. Well, I'm going to do a lightning round 
with you for a second. I'm going to tell you what that is. But first, our friend Sherry Voluntary says, she quotes Bastiat saying, the state is that great fiction by which everyone tries to live at the expense of everyone else by Frederick Bastiat, my hero. <laughs> and she also says, um, what would you all recommend reading? So if people want to find out more about anarchism or different strains of anarchism, is there anything in particular you'd recommend? Yeah, um, well, there's a book by Peter Marshall, uh, an English writer who published a magisterial history of anarchism. It came out in the late 2000s, so it's probably only about 10 years old at this point, so it's fairly up to date. A lot of historical works on anarchism tend to be uh, focused on, on 19th century anarchism, and a lot of these works were written in the 1950s and 1960s, but this is a more contemporary work. Uh, and it's it's a work that's something like 800 pages long, and it traces prototypical anarchist thinkers all the way back to ancient Greece and ancient uh, China, and talks about uh, in the Middle Ages, and talks about a lot of thinkers that came out of the Enlightenment that work into the development of modern anarchism and then it traces anarchist movements all the way up to contemporary times with groups like the you know the crime think and info shops and uh, all mm -hmm. these different anarcho-capitalism and all these all these other kinds of ideas um so i think that's a, a good place to start if you're interested in all the history um there's a, a writer named robert graham an anarchist historian who has a compilation he's got a trilogy of uh works where he actually has compiled the writings of anarchists and proto-anarchist writers, uh, mostly mostly anarchists, you know, for, formal anarchist writers, but also some, even some uh, early proto-anarchist writers going back to antiquity. You know, he's actually uh, compiled some of their works. You can actually read the original sources as well. Uh, that's mm -hmm. an interesting work. Robert Graham. Let's see, I've got that book over here somewhere. Excellent. Let's see the name of that book. Yeah, it's it's just called anarchism, uh, but it's got three volumes. Uh, does 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 what it says in the ten. Okay, so for those who want a quick um, premier, I'm gonna name an anarchist thinker. You can tell us basically what their place is um, and what their key idea is. Or or I know that's hard to sometimes. What did they contribute? And we'll try and go through them fairly quickly. Okay. Yeah. Put sure. on. Put on. Um, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon was a French radical in the early 19th century who was very uh, critical of the exploitation of, of labor and also of the peasantry as it existed in the French system in the early 19th century. Uh, if you read his works today, some of it will seem somewhat archaic uh, because he's dealing with a system that doesn't really exist in many ways. Uh, in, in many places, certainly not in France. Um, but his core idea was he wanted to have a society based on worker cooperatives with mutual banking, which would largely be uh, cooperative banking systems that are provide uh, low interest loans to uh, entrepreneurs and things like that. It's sort of, like, sort of like what we today would call a credit union, something like that. Kropotkin, can't even say that name. Sorry, yeah. Peter Kropotkin was actually from the Russian nobility. Uh, he lived in Russia in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, so he actually came from the aristocracy, but he became an anarchist and he was the godfather of what's called anarcho-communism, um, which is the idea that minus the state, uh, you're going to have a society based on communal um, you know, basically sharing of goods and resources. You know, he, I don't know that he would have said everybody's going to share the same toothbrush or something like that. But of all the prominent uh, communist 
anarcho anarchist communist thinkers. He's probably the most communist of, of any of the well-known ones. I think that his views were shaped largely by the tradition of the peasant communes that you found in traditional Russia. You know, he he lived in a society where you still had serfdom, where you still had serfs in, in Russia, um, and you had this peasant communal tradition. And he thought basically anarcho-communism would be the peasant communes minus the the landlords, minus the, the feudal landlords. Um, so I think that's how he developed his own theory of, of communism. And um, one thing that he said was that the model of anarchism, the individualist, you know, like free market, free enterprise model of anarchism, he noticed that that was only popular in England and in America in the 19th century. And the reason for that was at the time, England and America were more developed um, mm -hmm. you know, commercial societies compared to Russia, you know, anarcho-communism. Yeah, anarcho-communism tended to be more popular in, in feudal, agrarian, peasant-based societies like Spain and, and France and and, um, and Russia, whereas you know market-based anarchism tended to be more popular in commercial, industrial societies like England and America. Bakunin. Bakunin also came from the Russian nobility. Uh, he was a little bit older than uh, Kropotkin, came slightly before Kropotkin. He was a contemporary of Karl Marx. Um, he... Uh, had been a radical for much of his life, but it was only in the last seven years or so of his life that he became an anarchist, largely through his disenchantment with other kinds of radicalism, with socialism, with nationalism, and things like that. Um, probably the most important uh, aspect of his thinking is his critique of Marxism. He was a very strong anti-Marxist polemicist. He said that if you put these guys in power, they'll be just as bad as the Tsar. And that's exactly what happened in the Russian Revolution. Um, yeah, so that, that's, and his actual model of anarchism was similar to Kropotkin's. It, it was uh, a little less radical, but it was uh, basically the idea of worker collectives and cooperatives and things like that. You know, sort of a, you know, it, it, his ideas became the basis for anarcho-syndicalism, which is the idea of an uh, industrial economy run by unions. Sterner. Oh, Max Stirner is probably uh, one of the first modern anarchist thinkers. Now, he didn't really call himself an anarchist. This was before you had thinkers that were actually formally calling themselves an anarchist. He was a German philosopher that lived in the early 19th century. He was also a contemporary of Karl Marx. He knew Karl Marx personally uh, and Engels. In fact, the only thing that we have approaching a picture of Max Stirner is a, a hand sketch of, of Stirner that was done about 40 years later, uh, when John Henry McKay was doing a biography of Stirner, he actually went to Engels, who was an old man at the time, and said, you know, this, this Stirner guy, you actually knew him, what did he look like? And Stirner drew out this little hand sketch of, this is kind of what Max Stirner looked like. Um, but Max Stirner, Max Stirner I, I think the most important thing about Max Stirner was that he was a, an individualist, and he's, he's often grouped under the individualist anarchists. But my reading of him is that he really didn't have um, a model social system or anything like that. Like a lot of these early anarchists were mostly known for some model social system they were proposing, whether it was worker communes or collectives or mutual banks or total laissez-faire free market or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Stirner was more of a, a philosophical anarchist in the sense of rejecting authority. You know, like he was saying, well, I choose to disobey authority just because I choose to disobey authority. Mm -hmm. And he was different from modern libertarians as well. And he 
he probably wouldn't have cared a thing about the non-aggression principle or any of that. Okay. He probably would have said aggression is fine if you can get away with it. I mean, uh, right. for example, he's no, he's no, he's well known for having defended crime. You know, he was he would say right. things. Well, you know, crime is just another way of acquiring property or whatever. Okay, so basically, do as they will with the sum of yeah. the law. Yeah, 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 he's very similar to Crowley and, and thinkers yeah. like that. Right. Ragnar Redbeard or something. something. Right. Okay. Erico Malatesta. Um, he was a, an Italian anarchist in the early 20th century, uh, and he, he was a radical uh, in the in the anarchist movement that was also associated with the labor movement. Um, this was, by this time there had been this overlap between the radical labor movement and anarchism, and anarchists were sort of the sort of an extreme wing within the labor movement, um, and. Yeah, and they were anarchists in that time were very big on militant strikes and, and labor type activity and, and some went even further and abrogated terrorism, what they used to call propaganda by the deed. Uh, but Mala Testa was uh, um, an, an advocate of a, of a position that was, uh, I guess you could call it, it was sort of a forerunner to what's now called insurrectionism. You know, the idea, well, you know, what we really need is to forget about all these organizations, you know, unions and parties and that kind of stuff, and just have a full-on you know, revolt. You know, it's basically like a riot. You know, it's, uh, you know let's just have a, a spontaneous people's uprising where we uh, take over society and overthrow the ruling class or the state or whatever. He also was somewhat non-sectarian. He tended to embrace the idea of anarchism without adjectives. Um, there was a, a, a tendency within anarchism at the time called anarchism without adjectives, which sought to try to combine all the different schools of anarchism, like anarcho-communism and individualism and mutualism and all of that. Um, and they, you had proponents of that in different countries, and he was in that genre as well. Emma Goldman. Um, she was probably ultimately the, the classical anarchist that ended up being the most influential in the long run. She was a native of uh, Lithuania uh, when Lithuania was part of the old Tsarist Russian Empire. Um, and she was Jewish by ethnicity. Um, she went to the United States. She was part of the, the wave of immigrants from, from Europe to the United States that uh, came in the late 19th century. I think she... Uh, I can't remember if she was 13 or 17 when she came to the United States in her teens. Um, and she eventually got interested in the labor movement and then in radicalism and became a leading anarchist figure in the United States. Um, a you know, very outspoken person uh, not for things like uh, women's rights, obviously being a woman. She was sort of a pioneer feminist. In fact, that's really the reason why she's more well-known today than a lot of anarchists were, uh, classical anarchists were, is because, because of her legacy of a feminist. A lot of modern feminists trace her as one of their predecessors. I think that's mm -hmm. a big part of that. Um, uh, also, she was... Uh, she she was also able to introduce anarchism to a lot to a more mainstream audience than a lot of the other anarchists did. I mean, she would actually give lectures that would attract the more middle class type people and more intellectually oriented people, you know, as opposed to other anarchists that were more like at labor agitators and street fighters and and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, probably have we got spoon Spooner, Lysander Spooner. Lysander Spooner was an American anarchist, um, and again, he lived during the time before the, the label anarchist really became uh, common. But he uh, was probably closer to the American 
are revolutionaries in terms of his thinking. Uh, he was influenced by Thomas Jefferson and people like that. You know, the, the natural rights and alienable rights, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, the whole Lockean English yeah. liberty tradition that you know found its expression in the American Revolution. He took that idea to its conclusion and embraced anarchism and said, well, if you really, to really apply this idea consistently, you have to be what we would call an anarchist, although he didn't, I don't think he called himself that. Um, yeah. But he, he was very similar to today's anarcho-capitalist in the sense that he basically wanted to have a society where you know tr business and trade pretty much manage or provide everything that society needs and we don't really need anything else. He was also uh, an anti-slavery activist. You know, we still had slavery in the United States during that time as well. And he would actually try to implement some of his ideas. Like he tried to start a private mail delivery service and he got in trouble with that because the, the state claimed a monopoly on mail delivery. So, Right. And he, would I be right and say he opposed the Constitution or he opposed the, uh, a codification of, it, of the Constitution? Yeah, that's another important aspect of his thinking because he really attacked this idea of the social contract. Uh, that's actually an important idea because the most modern political philosophy is based on this idea of the social contract, which has its roots in thinkers like um, that they came out of the early Enlightenment period, like Hobbes and, and then John Locke and Jean-Jean Rousseau. You know, the idea being that, well, by choosing to live in civil society and ostensibly accepting the supposed protection that's provided by the state, you implicitly sign a contract to obey the laws of the state or whatever, uh, you know, which is, you know, logically speaking, that's a bit of a reach. But that remains the basis of uh, state uh, legitimacy today. I mean, you know, intellectuals like uh, Lysander Spooner that have worked to debunk that are important because if you, you know, if the social contract theory goes and is discredited, then the state goes, or at least modern political theory goes. Right. So Benjamin Tucker. Uh, he was another American anarchist. Um, he came a little bit later than Lysander Spooner, although he and Lysander Spooner are widely labeled the individualist anarchist. You know, there's this uh, American individualist anarchist tradition that's uh, often uh, brought up in a lot of history books on anarchism. And in fact, sometimes Max Stirner will be thrown into this category as an individualist anarchist as well. But I'd argue that Stirner and Spooner and Tucker actually had separate sets of ideas from each other, even though the individual is the focus of their ideas in this, you know, in a way that, you know, the collective or the commune may have been a focus for someone like Robotkin. Um, but Tucker actually called himself an anarchist. Um, he considered a lot of the European anarchists to be influences uh, on his thinking, uh, particularly Proudhon and even Marx. I think he may have actually translated some of Marx's work. Uh, you know, he was a labor radical, but his idea was that anarchism would be a total laissez-faire society, uh, very similar to what Spooner had advocated and, and also similar to today's anarcho-capitalist. But the difference though was that uh, Tucker had some fairly unique ideas on economic theory that he had derived from a lot of uh, um, socialists in Europe like Proudhon, as well as some earlier thinkers uh, in, in the United States like Josiah Green or no, Josiah Warren and, and William B. Green. Uh, you know, he had, he had the idea, for example, that uh, uh, rent would be impossible without uh, the state because if the state was not able to enforce uh, uh, the landlord-tenant relationship, then, the, the, uh, then the, really the landlords couldn't exact rent from tenants. Uh, and he thought that uh, profit, you know, would, would you know, he, he more or less held to the labor theory of value, which most modern economists don't. But he held to the labor theory of value and thought that, you know, surplus value 
um, that the Marxist claim is being extracted from labor would be impossible, um, minus the uh, the privileges that capital gets from the state, like patents and land grants and monopolies and tariff protection and all of these things. He had what he called the big four monopolies, which were, let's see, it was currency, land, patents, and tariffs, I think, were his big okay. four when it comes to the monopolies. But it's a somewhat complicated uh, economic argument, mm. um, but uh, but that's really his contribu contribution to anarchist theory. You mentioned Warren and Green. Yeah, uh, Josiah Warren and um, and William William B. Green, I believe, they had some ideas that were also very similar to Proudhon, uh, and they wanted to create these kinds of uh, cooperatives where uh, there would be labor exchanges where uh, you had. Uh, you know, the, the value of a product would be based on the amount of time that um, it took to make the product or something right. like that. Were they know, Americans? A, they were both Americans, yeah. They were, right. they were both Americans in the early 20th century. I mean, early 19th century. Um, they predate Tucker. They, they, I think they predate Lysander Spooner. Mm. But, um, yeah, and, and they actually created these kind of experimental cooperatives to try to implement these ideas. This was back in the day when the utopian socialist colonies and all of that were starting to become common, you know, like uh, like uh, New Harmony, like Robert Owen and people like that as well. Okay, just time for two more. Konkin? Uh, Samuel Konkin is more recent. He lived in the 1960s and 1970s. Well, he actually... He died not long ago, or probably about 10 years or so ago, something like that. Uh, but he created a school of thought called agorism. Now, agorism is largely, it's the same philosophy of an, as anarcho-capitalism that Murray Rothbard and thinkers like that advocated for, except Konkin had a somewhat different approach in the sense that he thought that the way to subvert the state was through counter-economics. You know, that is, you know, building the gray market, the off-the-books market, building the black market, the illegal market, um, and essentially uh, creating alternative economic arrangements in the way that the state collapses. Right. And finally, probably the listeners of this show's favorite, Murray Rothbard's. Yeah, Murray Rothbard um, was an economist, you know, an actual academic economist. Um, he was a Columbia PhD. Uh, and he really developed what we now call anarcho-capitalism because he, he more or less coined the term. You know, he, he yeah. was, um, he, what he did was he took a variety of ideas and synthesized them and created his own system. He, um, he took Austrian economics like Ludwig von Mises and Karl Menger and um, uh, Eugene von Berek and uh, um, who was some of the others, Frederick August von Hayek. He took some of those thinkers and synthesize that with individualist anarchists like Tucker and Spooner and some of those guys, uh, you know, he's sort, of, sort of a hybrid of 19th century individualist anarchism and Austrian economics. Plus Rothbard uh, identified with what he called the old right, which was the isolationist tradition and foreign policy that existed in the United States prior to World War II. Uh, you know, the non-interventionists, the people that had opposed American entry into the first mm. and second world wars. Um, and he was also heavily influenced by the, the English liberal tradition, natural rights of John Locke and Thomas Jefferson and all of that. Um, so he took all of these starting points from a you know, philosophical perspective or intellectual perspective and created his own idea about a total laissez-faire society based on nothing but private property. So everything is private. Um, you know, like garbage collection is private, and roads are private, and schools are private, and 
police are private, private courts, private armies, private everything. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what? I would love to sometime have you back on the show to speak about really existing anarchist yeah. societies like Iceland, Ireland, and someone ha we have yeah. had someone ask for that, but uh, I, I fear that we are running. We are filthy capitalists, but we don't want to capitalize on your time. <laughs> so please uh, plug your website. Tell us about yeah. any books that you've written that people should buy. Um, the website is attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds, attackthesystem.com. No hyphens or anything like that, just attackthesystem.com. Um, you can actually get copies of my book through the website, or you can go either to Amazon or directly to the publisher. The publisher is Black House Publishing, which is based in London. Um, but I've got about uh, six or seven books out um, on, on different uh, topics pertaining to anarchism. One is actually called The Failure of Anarchism, which is I'm actually critiquing a lot of anarchists and their shortcomings, nice. or I, I, what I perceive to be their shortcomings. That sounds great. That sounds great. I'd love to read and, that. And I have another work called, it's just called Attack the System, and the subtitle is A New Anarchist Perspective for the 21st Century, where I like outline some of these ideas some more. Uh, and then I have some other works where I, uh, I have one called Thinkers Against Modernity, uh, and that's not really an anarchist work, but it's a, a work where I go back and dust off all of these thinkers that, uh, from the past that actually criticize modern society. You know, everything from Nietzsche to uh, Julius Avila. There's a piece on Crowley, on Aleister Crowley in that uh, as well. Um, and then I, uh, I have one work on the Civil War in El Salvador in the 1980s. Um, that's actually something I did in graduate school, but it's a study of the uh, American foreign policy and American imperialism as a kind of case study in terms of how modern imperialism works. Um, and I've got some other books as well, so there's a lot of stuff out there. And then um, there's a ton of material that I've either written or interviews that I've done. If you just Google my name, you'll find tons of videos and podcasts and essays that have been published or republished or you know, blog posts or whatever that I've written or people have written about me. And Not all of which is positive. I have enemies as well as friends. Uh, Good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, doesn't Churchill say if you've got enemies, good? That means you've sometimes stood up for something. Yeah. Well, right. dude, listen. Do you know what I, we've done over? We've done eighty shows. I think I'd definitely put this one in the, in the top five. It's been phenomenal, and it's been great to have you on. I hope we can get you on again pretty soon. Yeah. Great to speak to you, Keith. Likewise. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Thank you. Have a great Our day. Our pleasure. Cheers. Bye.